everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 109 of the John Riley Project. Thanks for joining us on this amazing podcast. A great Saturday morning. It's what? What's the date? It's uh, February 8th, 2020. And uh, we got a lot in store for you. Um, you know, this podcast is all about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We broadcast here from Poway, California, 92064. We like to cover local issues. We like to cover national issues. And we're going to touch on a lot of that today. Um, man, we're going to be getting into Poway Unified School Bond, Measure P, talk a little bit about the county supervisor race. I've got some comments on the Iowa caucus, on the Democratic debate, on the uh, the week for Trump, which we just he had a pretty interesting week this week. Um, so just got a lot to share with you, a lot to kind of unload off my mind. But I, I just really hope you enjoy it. Um, but I want to give, before we give a uh, start here, I want to, number one, say, please subscribe to this podcast. Um, you know, right there, if you're watching on YouTube, you can click on the subscribe button right below there. Maybe even click on that bell. You'll get alerts when we release new updated episodes. Um, and then if you're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, if you're on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever platform you enjoy listening, please subscribe there as well. It's really helpful for us because as we build a subscriber base, it builds credibility. It helps us build an audience. And wouldn't you like to get updates when we have our next episode? So for those of you that have already subscribed, thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. Um, this episode, as uh, we had a great sponsor here, just got on board with us the last couple of episodes. It's PowayStore.com. So this episode is brought to you by our friends at PowayStore.com. Um, all right. So let's let's dig in on Poway Unified's bond that's coming forward. It's Measure P. Um, this is going to be a bond that's not just for the city of Poway, but for the entire Poway Unified School District, which covers 4S Ranch, Del Sur, um, Rancho Peñasquitos. Um, it covers Saber Springs, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Rancho Bernardo, and Poway. So, you know, this is a big school district, and this is a big bond measure that's coming forward. You know, they want to borrow $448 million. Um, and, um, you know, they, they, they're putting on the full court press now. You're starting to see the backers of Measure P. They're, they're coming out with, with mailers. And, and here's a copy of one that I just got in our mailbox yesterday. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see it. But it's this mailer that came out. You know, it's got the the child there on the front to kind of build the sympathetic angle to this. And it breaks down um, what's going on in the schools. And and it talks about who their, measure, who their um, supporters are, et cetera. What, this is a very interesting mail piece, and I, I want to just talk about a couple of things in it. Hey, first of all, like I said, it's the full court press here. And you're thinking, well, who's backing this? Well, a lot of it is, is, is a lot of it's coming from teachers. The teachers union is a huge supporter of this because it indirectly helps them. Because if they're able to move some of the um, maintenance costs, facilities maintenance to a bond, then that frees up space in the annual budget so they can get more raises. So, you, you know, they, they have, um, you know, they have their own special interests in this. Um, so keep that in mind as you as you take a look at this. But one of the things that's interesting, and, and you'll see this on the mail piece, they talk about how they're backed by the um, the San Diego um, 
Taxpayers Association. And they've been framed as some conservative taxpayer watchdog group, which is anything but the truth. The, the San Diego Tax Fighters, which is the organization run by Richard Ryder, that is a very conservative, low-tax um, organization. The San Diego Taxpayers Association, which is endorsing uh, Measure B here, they're more like a chamber of commerce. They they are um, always endorsing, frequently endorsing these large public projects because it opens up a lot of cash that can be used to to um, uh, be revenue streams for the construction industry and for a lot of other businesses in San Diego County. So they kind of. They're framed as a taxpayer watchdog, but they're really not. They're more of a supporter of these large-scale construction projects. So they have a vested interest in this passing as well because that's $448 million of revenue that's going to flow into some of these businesses, revenue that comes off the backs of taxpayers here in the Poway Unified School District. But in social media, we're starting to see a lot more of this uh, ramp up. We're seeing the the, the yes-on-P people are getting aggressive, Yard signs are out on the street corners. Um, the teachers are backing it. Now, keep in mind that this measure needs to get 55% approval to pass, not just a simple majority. So it'll be hard. Um, and just as a little tangent, it used to be that these school bonds required, I think it was a two-thirds or, or something very close to two-thirds in the past. And they could never get these school bonds passed. And I remember in the, the years leading up to the billion-dollar bond in Poway, they tried multiple times to pass a school bond, kept failing, and then other school districts had similar challenges. So what did they do? They got California to change the rules, and so now it only requires a 55% approval of the voters to pass these huge bonds, which create all of this debt and an increase in taxes on, on people. I mean, that was the reason why that they had a two-thirds requirement, because this was a tax increase. They wanted to make sure that you know 51% wasn't oppressing the 49. They figured they would get more of a supermajority to approve a tax increase, because a bond measure always is directly or or indirectly going to be a tax increase. Um, so it, it, it's interesting how the rules have shifted. But right now in, in 2020, it's for 55% that's going to be required to get it. And, you know, you see the people out there that are really pushing for this. Like I said, the teachers unions, um, you know, there are certain definitely some community groups that are supporting it. Of course, the school board themselves are big fans of this and they're pushing it in the school administration and they're putting a lot of money into it. These mailers and signs, it's, you know, it's incredible. But there's there's a very large groundswell of opposition to this. And I'm very, very happy to see that. Um, there was a really good letter to the editor in the Pomerado News, um, you know, pomeradonews.com, which is essentially the website for the Poway Chieftain and the Rancho Bernardo News Journal. Um, an individual came out criticizing the school board, um, you know, for, for these school bonds. And then there was also a column. Um, Harry, Harvey Levine, that in that same publication, that came out against the school bonds and really, you know, accusing the school district of not being able to manage their money properly, which. In my opinion, that's very true. Um, the school district has a long history of fiscal irresponsibility, and this, in my opinion, this bond is yet another example of that. 
Um, and our friends over at the Voice of San Diego, and if you ever check those folks out, voiceofsandiego.com, really good um, journalist, uh, journalism, uh, you know, essentially it's an online newspaper, and they do a lot of really deep investigative journalism. In fact, they were the ones that exposed the billion-dollar bond, you know, about, what was that, about eight years ago. They actually did, did the digging and figured out that the school board borrowed roughly $105 million and agreed to pay it back with nearly $1 billion, something that apparently the school board didn't know or the administration didn't know, or they chose to look the other way. Uh, Voice of San Diego you know, did a great expose on that, which later on turned into not only leading to the demise of many people on the, the school board, but also to a change in California law that prohibited the capital appreciation bonds. So they've always done a really good job. And Ashley McGlone is one of their reporters, and she's been doing some work and explained a little bit. You know, they did a podcast just recently explaining really the nuts and bolts of this, um, talked about the history of the billion dollar bond, talked about what this school bond that they're proposing now, Measure P, is for. And I thought she did a really good job. It was very straight ahead, factual reporting, not much commentary at all. Um, so I give her credit for that. I mean, that's real journalism, which is nice to see. Um, of course, as a podcaster, I can add in all of my own commentary and opinion on this, and I have lots of it. Um, but, you know, th there was also a piece in The Voice of San Diego talking about how Poway Unified gets less money from the state. And that's one of the main arguments that the people pushing Measure P are putting forward. They're saying, well, Poway Unified gets $1,500 less per year than – you know, many other school districts in the county. And that's true. And, and Ashley McGlone uh, presented that. But the reason is, is, is the way that the state does its calculation for student funding. Because, you know, all of our tax dollars for property tax, income tax, those are all collected. Um, and then the state at Sacramento level um, has their own algorithm to determine how much money that each school district should get on a per student per year basis. And, um, and so, yeah, so the, some of the school districts like this, the San Diego Unified School District, they have a greater burden because they have so many more vulnerable students, you know, students where English is a second language, students that are actually foster children, students that come from low income families. Those students um, by nature require more resources and therefore more funding for those resources. So while Poway is claiming they're getting fifteen hundred dollars a month less from those neighboring school districts, they also don't have nearly the same burden to provide services for these vulnerable students where English is a second language, there are foster children, low-income families. I mean, Poway Unified has some of that burden, but generally far, far less than some of these other school districts. So that's the reason why they get less, but their expenses should be lower as well because they don't have to carry that additional burden, not nearly to the same degree. So the fact that Poway Unified gets less makes sense. It's logical. OK, so um, let's keep that in mind because they're using that as an angle to say that's why we need more money for all of these additional needs for facility maintenance, et cetera. And so let's break that down. So the if you look at the mailer and here, I'll bust it out again here and you look at the pictures and, and they show, you know, leaking roofs and um, 
you know, broken infrastructure, playground equipment that's not working properly, et cetera. I mean, this is legit. I mean, they, they, there's wear and tear on uh, many of the things in the school district. Um, these things need repair. And really, repair, ongoing repair, is something that should be funded from their annual operating budget. Um, you don't put repair and this sort of thing on a credit card. You don't pass a bond measure. Now, Passing a bond to fund the construction of new schools, I, that, you know, you can make an argument for that. Um, you know, passing a bond for something that's going to generate a revenue stream that can pay for itself, you can rationalize that. Um, but passing a bond to simply repair roofs and repair air conditioning systems um, to, uh, you know, replace broken facade or to repair broken playground equipment, that makes no sense at all because you're not only paying for that repair, but then you're paying interest on that repair. So that doesn't make sense at all. Um, it really comes down to, in my opinion, a matter of priorities. Keep in mind that while this school bond is a $448 million um, loan, which is going to have a payback of, depending on who you, you pay attention to, probably between $600 million and $750 million payback, roughly. Um, the school, meanwhile, the school district itself has a $400 million a year annual operating budget. They get $400 million a year. Um, so there's money. There's plenty of money to repair roofs, repair air conditioning systems, et cetera. The, the issue is it's a matter of priorities. Now, is the, you know, what you'll see, again, on the mailer, right, there's a, there's a picture of a child and trying to build the sympathy there. But if this is really about the children, then shouldn't repairing roofs and repairing broken air conditioning units in the middle of hot months – be a high priority? Shouldn't those be funded at an extraordinarily high priority in the $400 million budget? Well, apparently not. Uh, they're pushing that off because what they are prioritizing instead are raises on top of raises on top of raises for teachers primarily and also for school management and other school employees. So, what in many ways this is, is a ploy, in my opinion. This bond is a ploy to push facilities maintenance out of the $400 million annual operating budget and put it into a bond where it can be set aside in a separate buck of money. And they'll, they'll shift that burden um, to parents and, and to uh, taxpayers to pay for that plus interest. So it clears space in that $400 million budget so they can keep giving themselves more and more raises. And, you know, the school board votes for those raises. The school board is endorsed by the teachers union. The school board is largely endorsed by the employee union. So it's that quid pro quo where the union backs the candidate, then the candidate is elected, then that school board elected official then votes for backing the union and giving them raises. And it's this incestuous um, cycle that is damaging the taxpayers. And that's what's happening here. Now, you see this even on a more of a micro level in the schools, in my opinion, where they shortchange teachers on school supplies. It's the same basic concept where 
they they minimize the the, uh, the budget for school supplies, and then they put the burden on the teacher. The teacher then comes to the parents with a sob story that they can't afford it, which they can't because they, they've they've burdened the teacher. The teacher then tries to get parents to pay. Sometimes they take on some of the burden. It's completely wrong. School supplies should be funded from the $400 million a year budget. But they keep pushing these things off budget so it clears space for more compensation for teachers and employees. I mean, even at Twin Peaks Middle School, just recently they had a big fundraiser just to buy tables and chairs for a classroom. And you're thinking, how is how is the school district not able to fund tables and chairs out of their basic operating budget? The reason is, is that they keep giving out raises. Um, so there's there's a long history of this with fiscal irresponsibility with the school board. You know, we can go back to the billion dollar bond, which has been discussed at ad infinitum. Um, there's also the corruption that occurred with the previous superintendent where he was embezzling money, found guilty in a court of law. Um, and then this long string of deficits. And sometimes you hear the school board or the superintendent say, you know, that was the other people. That was John Collins. That was the previous school board. We're new. We're trying to fix things. Give us a second chance. But you know what? As taxpayers, we keep bearing that burden. I mean, in fact, we haven't even started paying on the billion dollar bond. And now they want to put another level of bonds on top of that. And we still have other bonds that are cooking now that we're paying on. So it's layers upon layers upon layers of debt to make up for the bad decisions that the school board continues to make. So, sure, it's different leadership, but as taxpayers, we're the ones that have to carry the load. We're the ones that have to keep paying more and more money. I mean, at what point do we say no? And I think we're starting to see some of that now with, I mean, I get on social media and sure enough, you know, the proponents of Prop P or Measure P, again, largely school board, teachers, et cetera, the people inside the system, um, but those outside, you're hearing a lot of parents saying no, 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 because people are still bitter, still angry, still feeling like they got screwed over on the billion dollar bond and they did get screwed over. But keep in mind also that this school district um, for the last I think it's the last four years, this year and the previous three, three out of those four years, they've had a deficit. And they were warned about this. We warned them. I was part of the uh, Budget Review Advisory Committee back in 2016, and we told the school board back then, you have an, a structural deficit. And what that means is, is that their recurring annual expenses exceed their recurring annual revenues. But they were partly masked because Jerry Brown, when the economy was doing well, would sometimes send a bucket of money down, a one-time payment that would put the district into a, into a surplus. This is prior to 2016. That made the budget look good. But underneath the hood, there were flaws. There was a structural deficit that was dangerous. But they were using that one-time money to be justification for more and more raises, which had ongoing expenses year after year after year that continuously grew, not just for salary and benefits, but also for pensions. And so – we warned them then in 2016, they had a structural deficit. They ignored our warnings. They kept giving out raises. Now, three of the last four years, they're in a deficit. Their reserves have been declining um, and they can't 
they can't balance their books right now. And now they want to pile on more and more debt. I'm saying, look, folks, you need to prioritize your own budget. You have $400 million a year. I mean, I, I shared a, a podcast it must have been about a few months ago about all the ways that the school district can save money through downsizing at the district headquarters, through outsourcing some out of the classroom functions like trucking and warehousing and, and possibly food services, et cetera, to third parties that can do it at a lower cost and also not have the ongoing pension obligation. Um, there are creative things that they can use to um, bring classrooms and, and actually for high school students that are on track to go to college that will in a year or two be in a large lecture hall format. They could do the same thing in high school. Imagine like right now they've got what two or so chemistry teachers at every high school. Imagine just having one chemistry teacher, the best chemistry teacher in the whole school district and having them rotate through um, uh, doing lectures in the Performing Arts Center. Um, they can have online streaming of, of these lectures. They can keep a couple of additional teachers as aides to help in some cases, but there are creative ways they can reduce teacher headcount. There are creative ways they can reduce non-teacher headcount. There are creative ways they can automate things like attendance. I mean, that could be a, a that can be an app you know, to manage attendance, but instead they've got staff at every school managing that. There are a lot of creative things that they can do. It's all a matter of priorities. And what, and I believe fixing leaking roofs, fixing air conditioning units that are broken, those are legit problems. Those are serious problems that the Poway Unified has now, but those need to be funded at the highest priority. They don't need to be a low priority and then pushed out to a bond where taxpayers take the load and then have to pay interest on that over the course of 28 years. I mean, that's just insane. So um, the folks from Measure B, uh, Measure P, pardon me, are going to be um, very aggressive over the next month or so as we get to the March 3rd election. Um, I invite you to pay attention, um, to look at it um, with a critical eye and to consider all the facts. Um, you're going to hear sob stories about uh, you know things that are broken in the school district. In many cases, they're right. Um, there are things that are legitimately broken. The issue is, is what is the right strategy to fund it? What is the right strategy to pay for it? And what is the higher priority? Raises on top of raises on top of raises for teachers, management and other employees? Or is the priority to fix leaking roofs and broken air conditioning units? Which one really serves the children the most? I ask you that. Okay, um, a little bit more on Poway politics. I just want to comment very briefly um, on the, the the San Diego County Supervisor Race District 2. And that's the one where Steve Voss, the mayor of Poway, is running and he's going up against Joel Anderson. And those are the two primary people in the race. Um, and already now, you know, the hit pieces are coming. It's starting to get ugly. Not unlike what we're seeing in the congressional race out in El Cajon between Isa and DeMaio. That's gotten really ugly, um, which I commented on previously. But we're starting to see hit pieces. And um, it was an interesting angle to this is that um, an email was sent out to registered voters in the area, uh, a hit piece on, on Steve Voss. And I'm not going to break down the hit piece itself. I mean, you're invited to go look at it and we could discuss it. But I really want to talk about one angle to this that was very interesting that came up in some of our conversation on social media. And these people are saying, 
how did I get on this list? I didn't sign up for this. And I'm getting all this. And people are upset it was biased media. Well, it's advertising for elections. It's going to be biased. But people were really upset that they were getting these these emails. And so it made, you know, I had the conversation with them. And, and the, what's interesting is, is that the San Diego County Registrar of Voters manages our voter rolls. And they keep track of who's registered to vote. And who's not, right? And in those voter rolls, when people register, they leave their name, their address. Um, they um, sometimes will voluntarily give their email. They'll um, identify their political party. And then the county of San, San Diego's Registrar of Voters Office also keeps track who votes in which election. And that data they sell to the candidates. They actively market it to the candidates. And then political marketers that build these nationwide voter databases, um, they collect that information as well because they want to track people that have voted not just in the most recent election, but have mo voted in the most the last three most recent elections because they know they have the highest probability to vote in this primary in March. They look for some of that behavior, that consistency of behavior to predict who is most likely to vote because they don't want to spend money on these kinds of mailers, which are very expensive, um, to target people that aren't likely to vote. They also target people based on their political party, um, et cetera. So people here in Poway were getting these emails, at, you know, this slam piece of Mayor Voss, and, and they're saying, well, how did I get on this list? And it's because when you register to vote, you offer up your email. And when you do that, maybe you're thinking, oh, they're going to communicate back with me with email and, you know, save the trees and save the planet. But by voluntarily giving that information, they go out and resell that data, which it's public record. I mean, in fact, if you go to the, the county assessor's office, all the property data they have is also public record. You know, they, you can get a list of people who owns the homes, what the square footage is, whether or not it has a pool, how many bedrooms, bathrooms, what the assessed value is, yada, yada. That's public record as well. Um, and that is that is sold in the data marketplace. The interesting angle to this is that there were people that really wanted to get off of this email list um, and they wanted to just contact the county registrar and say, take me off the list, Ex delete my email. And right now we're in a world now where, you know, California just passed a, a, a big law, you know, protecting privacy. You know, there's a lot of hysteria about Google and Facebook tracking user behavior. There's been canned spam laws in the past that are trying to make um, email um, uh, you know, email spamming illegal, et cetera. And I understand the reasons why for all that. But the funny part of it is, is that when you ask the government to take you off the list, they can't do it. Um, they struggled with it. If you go to the Registrar of Voters website, there's no like take me off the list button <laughs> that you can you know, have your email um, removed. And what you have to do instead is you have to cancel your registration and then re-register, which, of course, is typical government. They make it more bureaucratic, more painful, more difficult. But it was an interesting angle to this whole thing because – there's so much concern, hysteria about privacy, about data, about data brokers um, and government passing laws, regulations, but they don't they can't execute it themselves. It's like the classic thing in Congress where they pass laws that don't apply to them. And that's what we're seeing here, which is unbelievable. Um, so that's something that our registrar of voters really needs to straighten out. OK, uh, 
want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, PowwayStore.com. And they, they, they came over and they shared with me some of the stuff they got. This is one of their coffee mugs. And it's got, um, I, for those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can see it. But it's the old Poway. You know, it's got the little cowboy hat, the city and the country. And they got all kinds of other things. They've got uh, T-shirts, um, stickers. Um, what else they got over there? Uh, um drinkware, uh, like, like mugs like this, um, and all sporting, you know, either a Poway city in the country or there, there's one that is like a historic trails, um, t-shirt that has a rendering of the big stone lodge and the Poway historical trails. There's, um, there's another kind of a funny one. And, and you know, the, the slogan in Poway is the city in the country. There's a whole set of t-shirts and stickers that say Poway, the city that bulldozed the country, which is, you know, kind of a shot, um, over the bow at, at a lot of the construction that we're seeing on Poway Road today at the outpost and a lot of the future construction that's going to be coming forward. So get out there to PowayStore.com and check out what they've got. You know, you can sign up, get on their email list to get updates on new products and offerings. And, and you know what, as long as you're signing up on an email list and we're talking about email with the Registrar of Voters as well, um, you can get on our email list, uh, John Riley Project uh, email. You, if you just go to johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. Um, joining our email list, you'll, you'll get a newsletter, you know, maybe monthly um, where you can one click unsubscribe. So uh, very easy to do that. Uh, but just our, our mailing list for the John Riley Project just gives you updates on upcoming guests, information on previous guests, maybe a little insight behind the scenes, some of the things we're working on here in the podcast project. So, um, yeah, sign up for the John Riley po- uh, Project uh, email list at johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. But also um, our friends at Poway Store. Check them out, powaystore.com. And on their website, you can sign up on their email list as well. Okay. Um, those are some of the local issues, but I want to talk about some national issues because there's been a ton of national issues that have been floating around here. And so I want to talk about the Iowa caucus and man, what a freaking cluster that turned out to be. You know, they're, they used some new technology. They had an app and it didn't work right. And, and the caucus itself is kind of a cluster, you know, where people show up at a gymnasium and they, they support their first candidate. And if that candidate doesn't get enough votes, they actually move. They get up out of their chair and move to another section of the gymnasium and then they're counted over there. So it's like a, like a game of, um, twister, you know, where you're kind of moving around and and uh, it's something to watch. And it's participatory democracy is kind of fun, but it's just a mess. And you and the people that are running it, you know, you wonder how competent they are, if they're really good at organizing. And some of these precincts, when they were turning in their votes, some of it was convoluted. The app had trouble. So the whole thing turned into a cluster. Um, The DNC uh, chair, I think his name's Tom Perez, I think. So he's under fire, even though it wasn't his organization that did it. It was the Iowa Democratic uh, Party and their caucus organization. But it just turned into a mess. But the interesting thing about it is I went and did the math and the total number of voters in the Iowa caucus was 172,521. Now, think about that. This is the first you know, official vote for the presidency of the United States. This vote in the Iowa caucus will launch the can- the candidacy of certain candidates. Like when Barack Obama won in twenty in two thousand eight, I mean, it just set him up. You know, with this great trajectory, and he shot forward um, when he defeated 
I think it was Hillary, right? It was Hillary in twenty in two thousand eight, and, and a cast of others. Um, and, and then you know everyone wants that bump from Iowa to kind of position themselves uh, for New Hampshire, but really. We're basing this all on just 172,521 votes. So just to give you a sense of proportion, the this um, supervisor district that we're I just talked about Mayor Voss is running for, you know, against Joel Anderson and a few others, um, that race in 2016, when our current incumbent Diane Jacob was uh, the winner, that got 142,612 so just like 30,000 less than the whole state of Iowa voted in just the East County portion of the San Diego County Supervisors race. That's incredible. And East County, San Diego is not heavily populated. And Iowa just had barely more people that were participating. And then if I look at my congressman, my congressman is uh, Scott Peters. In 2018, when he ran, there were 296,000 uh, um, and seven voters. So well over 50% more that voted in our congressional race than voted in the entire state of Iowa in this primary, or excuse me, in this caucus. And our district, and it's interesting, I think it's District 52 that Peters is uh, in charge of. So that's a crazy, sinewy, gerrymandered district that like goes from Poway and and then it it might even start it up in parts of Escondido near San Pasqual, near the Wild Animal Park. It goes through Poway and then Mira Mesa, and then it kind of cuts over to La Jolla, and then it goes down to Coronado. It's just this, yeah, I mean, the classic gerrymandered. Um, but interestingly, the, this district is reasonably balanced. Um, and that's why Scott Peters is a very middle-of-the-road guy. Um, it's, it's not as tilted as other districts, which, I, which is interesting. You know, uh, Usually the, the very gerrymandered districts tend to be heavily Republican or heavily Democrat. Um, but anyway, it just it's fascinating that these caucuses carry so much weight that are covered so widely in the press that are make or break moments for these candidates. And yet the people that vote in it are just a tiny fraction of the number of people um, that vote in San Diego County. And then. You know, you, then you see this whole aftermath and, you know, they were trying to get all the votes and they were struggling and the vote and the quantity was trickling out. And you're just thinking, man, what a freaking cluster. And and these are the people, the Democratic Party that wants to put forward single payer health care. And you're thinking, oh, my God, um, you know, it, it just was it was just inept the way the whole thing was handled. It was a disgrace. And so now there's been a lot of criticism about the process and there's been a lot of talk about why is Iowa the first one? And I, I think that's a fair point. You know, why is Iowa always the first? Why is New Hampshire always the first primary? And on one hand, it, it, it is I mean, it, it is kind of good that it's a smaller group because then the candidates can meet with a lot more people. I mean, imagine if the first primary was in California, they'd be spread so thin because it's such a enormous state, both in population and geographically. Um, but why is it always Iowa and New Hampshire? Why do those states always go first? And are they representative of America? And there's been a lot of challenges to that, especially on the basis of demographics, of race. Um, but. And, and then, you know, the, then the next one in line, I think, is Nevada and then South Carolina or South Carolina, Nevada. South Carolina, obviously, very different demographic profile, a lot more African-Americans. Um, Nevada, very different. But Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, pretty largely white population. Um, now, 
we can debate whether how important that is, et cetera. But I think I do agree that I think they should have some sort of a of a rotating basis for this. They're, they need to change the system because it's the same group of people that are always making the decision. Because let's just say if you're a candidate and you're serious about running and you're very dependent on a certain demographic group and they have poor representation in those first two states, well, you could finish in fifth or sixth place in both Iowa and New Hampshire, and then you're doomed. Then the the voters kind of shun you. They say, oh, this person can't win. The people that donate money are saying this guy can't win either. So by the time they get to the third or fourth state, they're, they're out of resources. Um, so I do think it makes sense to actually shake it up. And I, I hope they can do that. But you know, the Democratic and Republican parties manage this whole process. They rig the system to their benefit. It's going to be hard to shake that up. But I think I think um, the social justice warriors are right on this point, that they need to shake it up. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure, particularly amongst the Democrats in Iowa, to move that around, especially they, since they had the big cluster with this. But there is one other interesting point to this that I want to make, and, and – um, and, and this is kind of connected with Andrew Yang. And I've commented about Andrew Yang. I, I think he's a very interesting candidate. He talks a lot about topics that most people in the race don't talk about. He's, he's a fresh face, lots of energy. Um, one issue that he um, has on his list of issues on his website, which, by the way, is this huge list of issues. He's very brave. Most politicians only make comments on the most important issues Yang goes and covers so much cat, so much territory. I mean, he even has a position about eliminating the penny because the the cost to produce a penny is more than the than the value of a penny itself, which actually has a lot of logic to doing that. Uh, but at any rate, he, one of the things that he puts forward, I think, is a great policy: is ranked choice voting. You know, we talked about that when Fernando Garcia was here, the independent congressional candidate running in District. 53, which is in the center of San Diego. Um, and ranked choice voting, you know, I was thinking about this and pertains to the way the, the caucuses run. It's very similar, um, you know, because with the caucuses, like, for example, if, if you would show up at a gym and they would say, OK, all the Bernie supporters go over there and then all of the Mayor Pete people go over there and all the Andrew Yang people go over there. And then for all the Tom Steyer people, which, by the way, how in the hell is Tom Steyer still in this race? Um, all the Tom Steyer people, you go to over here, you go in this corner of the gym. And then if you aren't what they consider viable, if you don't have 15 percent of the vote in that gymnasium that night, then what you do is you say, OK, my guy's not viable. So now I'm going to move and go to another portion of the gymnasium and sit in the group that's my second choice. And it's a very intriguing process. I like it because it encourages you to support who you like, you know, rather than supporting who you think is the lesser of evils. And, and for a lot of ways, that's how a lot of these elections are framed. They don't want people don't want to waste their vote on you know, a, a lower tier candidate that has no chance of winning. So they compromise their principles. They compromise their values as a voter and vote for a person that they don't like, but they like slightly better than the person they really, really hate. Um, 
and so what they're doing in the Iowa caucuses is largely trying to, you know, change that that dynamic, which I think is fantastic. But the problem is, is they're doing it in these gymnasiums and people are moving around and it's like, you know, it's like an episode of the Three Stooges and people are bumping into each other. And then you've got, you know, these old people with, you know, declining eyesight up there trying to count all the people that are sitting up there. And the system is very flawed. It, it lacks a lot of integrity. Ranked choice voting would solve this. Ranked choice voting is a beautiful, beautiful system because it's essentially the same concept where you would go into a race and then you would say, this is my first choice. And you would circle that uh, bubble in the ballot. And then your second choice, you would circle your third choice, your fourth choice, your fifth choice in that order. And then what they do is they say, okay, amongst everyone's first choices, did anyone, um, did anyone get 50%? And if they do, they win just like in any election. But if they don't, then they go to their fifth choice, their bottom choice tier. And if that person, um, they, they essentially eliminate all those fifth place votes and then um, and then those votes bubble up. And so effectively, I'm, I'm probably not explaining it exactly right, but effectively, you know, you're your votes will bubble up. To, so if your first choice isn't the winner, then your second choice is considered. And if the second choice ultimately doesn't win, then your third choice is considered. And it, and it incrementally ratchets up until someone gets 50% of the vote. Imagine if they did this in Iowa. If they did, number one, they would have full integrity over the way the vote was calculated. You wouldn't be in a gymnasium and people showing up and moving around in their chairs and, you know, people taking bathroom breaks and not being there for the count. It would be way, way better organized because it would all be computer controlled and tabulated just like the way we vote now where they're scanned and you have paper ballots and everything else. The second part of it is, is that it would encourage way, way more people voting. I mean, in Iowa, only 172,000 voted, but you can't vote absentee in a caucus. And imagine if it's a stormy night and it's snowing and it's freezing temperature, people are going to say the hell with it. I'm staying home where it's warm. I don't want to go out in dangerous conditions. But imagine instead if they could vote absentee, that 172,000 could probably be 300, 400,000 people voting. I mean, heck, in the state of California, roughly two thirds of the voters are absentee voters that vote by mail. So this could double or triple the number of people participating in the Iowa um, in the Iowa voting process. And um, it would be done with tremendous integrity. And and then people like like I said, wouldn't have to get up and show up and and it would just all be handled nice and smooth. But you would still have that ability to have a second round, a third round where your votes would bubble up, ratchet up. If your first choice didn't win, then your second choice. And I, I've often used the example of the famous 2000 uh, race with President George Bush, or at the time Governor Bush, and then um, Al Gore, Vice President Al Gore. And then remember there was um, uh, Nader. And why am I blanking on his first name? Um, but he was the Green Party candidate. And um, wow, I'm spacing on his name. But at any rate, um, a lot of people voted for Nader in that race in Florida because he was their first choice. But imagine if if Nader didn't win, then their vote would go to Gore as their second choice. And then they could put George Bush dead last 
you know, because obviously a progressive would be the one voting for Nader. So they could put George Bush dead last as the one that they don't want at all. And and that way they wouldn't feel like they had to compromise by voting for Gore, who they maybe didn't really like, but felt they had to vote for Gore because they didn't want Bush. It was a defensive vote. Instead, they could have voted for Nader number one, voted their conscience, voted their values, stuck to their principles. And then if Nader didn't get that vote, then it would bubble down to their second choice, which would probably have been Gore. That would be so much better. Because how often when you vote, do you vote for the lesser of evils? When you vote for the lesser of evils, what do you get? You get evil. You get evil. And we, 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 need to, we need to transform this system. People vote out of fear. People largely, like in the 2016 election, how many people were really pro-Trump as opposed to anti-Hillary? Now, I would bet that more of the Trump voters were anti-Hillary than were pro-Trump. I mean, we hear the stories about people, you know, holding their nose or or looking the other way and voting for Trump because they didn't want Hillary. And I think the opposite is true, too. I think there were a lot of progressives that voted for Hillary that didn't really like her, but they definitely didn't want Trump. And so this creates this distorted system, this dysfunctional system, and that's why we keep getting crappy candidates. Now, if we can instead vote for who we want, who is most aligned with our values and most aligned with our principles, most aligned with our perspective of society, then we could have a much better outcome. So the, um, the, yeah, the Iowa caucus, very interesting, um, I think, ranked choice voting should be the next evolution of this. We need to get beyond this 19th century caucus um, uh, solution and really move to the 21st century with ranked choice voting. Okay, um, let's talk about the Democratic debate. And uh, I've missed the last few debates, but I stayed last night. I made a point of watching it. And it was good because, you know, there were only seven candidates and we kind of have a sense of what was happening in Iowa. And, you know, I, I was curious because, you know, Biden is starting to feel the heat. Biden finished fourth place. He said he got a gut punch in Iowa. And then, um, you know, Bernie and Mayor Pete came out of Iowa very close to tied. Mayor Pete with, I think, just two more delegates than Bernie, although Bernie won the popular vote in the first round of the caucuses before everyone got up and played musical chairs. Um, but Mayor Pete uh, won barely. So now I want to see the battle between those two. I'm always interested to hear what Andrew Yang has to say um, and, and the other candidates. I was really intrigued. And, and this was at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire and probably like a small liberal arts school. And I know they've hosted a number of debates in the past. But I don't know, for some reason, I get stuck in my head, San Anselmo, as opposed to St. Anselm. Um, San Anselmo, I think, is a city in Marin. Um, but every time I see St. Anselm College, I always think they're missing the O on the end. Um, but at any rate, they had the debate, and it was it was fascinating. And I, I, I live tweeted it, and I enjoyed doing that, just being a smart aleck and, and offering my zingers and, and comments. But, you know, first they get announced and they come walking out on stage, right? And, you know, first it's Tom Steyer, and, and then I think it was Amy Klobuchar was next. And, you know, they all come out and they're all looking good. And I've commented about presentation. I, I've commented about how, 
you know, um, Andrew Yang doesn't wear a tie, and I think that's part of his brand image, and that makes him a fresh candidate. I've commented about Steyer and that plaid tie he always wears. It's that consistent look, that branding that I think is really interesting, like how Tulsi Gabbard always wore that white suit that looks spectacular. Um, and Tulsi, by the way, not on the stage. Um, I think she has a fresh perspective, you know, especially on foreign policy. Um, she wasn't there. But a lot of the other politicians always kind of have a look. But then here comes Bernie Sanders and just the classic frumpy old man. And, and he's not even wearing a suit. He's wearing slacks and a, and a sport coat that are slightly different colors. So it almost looks like a suit with like he grabbed the wrong pants and the wrong jacket. Um, and it's like slightly oversized and he's kind of slunching as he comes out. And just the classic grumpy old man look. And, and who knows? Maybe this is calculated. I don't know. It might be part of his brand. But heck, if you go back in time and look at some of the photography of him when he was first um, in the Senate, first in the House, or back when he was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, um, it's, it's this is all that's a consistent look for him. Um I just thought it was funny. And um, and then all the candidates roll out and they all kind of start and the debate starts rolling. And, and here we go. And again, I talked about Andrew Yang. I, I, I'm not a big fan of his, his flagship proposal for universal basic income, but I like a lot of the other stuff. And I like his personality. I like his energy. Um, I like the way that he has a he's innovative. He's a different kind of thinker, which I think would be so helpful because we've kind of got this sort of establishment Republican and establishment Democrat. And you got some people that are more progressive. You got a couple of people on the Republican side, you know, that are more liberty oriented or, or more, you know, fascist oriented. Uh, But Yang is like something different, you know, and, and, you know, he's in the Democratic primary, which I guess makes sense more so than the Republican. Uh, but he's just he just puts a smile on my face every time I hear him. And so enjoyed hearing him get up there. And then, you know, and a lot of the talking points through this um, this debate were largely the same ones we hear about. You know, it was about taxes, about health care. You know, there was a little bit more conversation on race in this particular debate, which I thought was was interesting. Um, but. Bernie trotted out the same old tired phrase, we need to make the rich pay their fair share. And now I get it. I understand what he's trying to do. You know, he wants to tax the wealthy. He wants to tax corporations so he can fund, you know, all of these social programs, you know, debt-free college, uh, you know, erasing the debt today, you know, tuition-free college, I should say, um, eliminating student debt, you know, the the um, expanding Social Security, Medicare for all. I mean, he's got this huge list of things he wants to do and he needs money for it. So he wants to go and tax the rich. The part that I always struggle with is when people say – They're not paying their fair share. Well, what in the hell is a fair share? It's never defined. It's it's this nebulous thing like a political football that gets kicked around. But what is a person's fair share? How do you mathematically compute that? You know, and you might say, well, the rich need to pay a higher percentage and the you know, and you might get upset that Amazon's paying zero percent. Okay, but what is fair? Seriously, what is fair? The fair percentage. It's completely subjective. And what is your share? I mean, think about this. So we got we have a a BS war that's been going on for 20 years in Afghanistan that we've been spending hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars on. What is your share of that of that war? When 
when we had bailouts of businesses, when we had bailouts, you know, during the financial crisis, what is your share of that? And if if you suffer, what is their share of your suffering? You know, so you you how do you compute share, and then how do you know what's fair? I mean, some people say it's fair that some people pay zero and other people pay a ton. Um, how is that fair? So I always. I always object to that phrase because I think it's it's a politically charged comment um, without any structural definition to it, and um, and 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 always it's always never that some well I should say in very rare cases does anyone believe that they're not paying their fair share. Typically, it's that other people are not paying their fair share. You know, so from the perspective of a progressive, the rich people aren't paying their fair share. And then from the perspective of other people, they say, look at these people over here that are paying nothing. Amazon paying nothing. You know, um, roughly almost half of federal income tax filers pay no federal income tax. Some people say they're not paying their fair share. So how do you debate it? I, it it's just crazy. And, and I always challenge that comment. I, I think it would be really good someday to break it down. What is fair and what is your share? Um, because I think that varies quite a bit. Okay. Um, and then Bernie, you know, gets up there and he wants government to manage the health care insurance for everybody and thinks that only government can do it. And, you know, they, they tend to think of government as this sort of selfless, this you know, for the people organization that can keep it out of the hands of the greedy corporations, et cetera. But this is the same government that has rigged the healthcare system to prevent prescription drug medication from being negotiated. This is the same government that has set up systems that forced people to buy healthcare insurance from those same corporations. So, and now you think that the federal government is going to be able to get this right? I mean, to me, that's a huge problem. And then when you make it Medicare for all, then they have a monopoly on it and you can't choose any other health care insurance because it becomes illegal. And then what happens when they screw it up? What happens if they have to keep jacking up the price because they screwed it up or there was corruption, et cetera? You have nowhere else to go. Um, so it's interesting how um, our friends on the progressive side are so um, object to monopolies so greatly in the private sector but they greatly embrace monopolies in the public sector, which makes no sense to me at all. Um, so we should have, a, in my opinion, a very robust, competitive marketplace for this sort of thing. But we don't have that now. Um, the current healthcare system today is anything but a free market. It's highly regulated, highly controlled, highly restricted with tremendous government um, central control. And it's cluster. And you know, you might have faith in the Swedish government or the Danish government to get it right. But do you have faith in our people in Washington, D.C. to get this right? Really? I mean, imagine if President Trump was running universal health care <laughs> or single payer health care. It would be a disaster. It would be awful. Um, so um, I know I, I'm always a big proponent of making the markets freer. Imagine if prescription drugs, we could buy them um, in from foreign countries that were imported. Uh, imagine if, uh, you know, if, if we had a marketplace where there was competitive pressure to bring prices down. I mean, look at the cost of contact lenses or LASIK surgery. Those are all extraordinarily inexpensive. We've seen prices come down, quality go up because it's a competitive marketplace. But in those areas where there is less competition, where there is more government regulation, that's where we're seeing prices go up and up and up. 
And so I, I, I have no faith in our government being able to execute a single payer health care at all. And so when I see um, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren talking about it, I, I always very skeptical. Um, and speaking of, of Warren, um, and I, I'm not a fan of Elizabeth Warren for a lot of reasons, but and I've come I've had a whole podcast episode about her. But one of the things that she has said in, in this recent debate, and she said it in a number of the previous debates, and she says on day one, you know, I am going to reduce the, pres- the price of prescription drugs. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the hell are you going to do that on day one? OK, now this this is the whole part of, you know, the president acting like a king or acting like a queen, um, the president unilaterally doing things. Um, and, you know, whatever happened to separation of power? I mean, if, if you want to get the government out of the business of managing, uh, you know, prescription drug prices or lowering prices, I mean, Congress has to do their job. Now, people complain that Congress isn't doing their job, but we still have a process. We still have a separation of power. We still have a rules to how this whole system works. Just because you don't like the rules, you can't just step in and just unilaterally do things. If you want to combine the legislative and executive branches into one, I mean, that's when we get tyranny. That's when we get a dictator. And maybe they're doing it for a a benevolent reason to lower prescription drug prices. But, you know, who 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 comes in next? And and we've been seeing that happen where the the power of Congress becoming diminished and diminished because they keep wussing out and they they shift that power to the president, the president becoming more and more and more powerful. And then we get to the point now where they're almost immune to impeachment. So um, when when Elizabeth Warren gets up there and says she's going to you know unilaterally on day one, she's going to lower prescription drug prices. I'm just saying that's a load of BS. And 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 even if she could do it, she shouldn't be able to do it because it violates the separation of power, the co-equal branches of government, because Congress has a role. The executive branch has a role. And then also, of course, the judicial branch has a role. Um, we can't be subverting that. And I think in many ways, that's the beauty of you know the way our government was set up. Um, our founders did a lot of things right. I mean, there's definitely some flaws from our founders, but this is one of the beautiful things they got right because they knew when they were in England, they lived under the thumb of a monarch and they didn't want that. Um, and, but they still wanted the people to have power, but they also knew that you needed a leader of the executive branch and they nicely set up a system that I think is great, um, but it's constantly you know, subverted. And Warren pushing for that as well. And then, of course, Elizabeth Warren trots out her, you know, I just want to increase taxes just two cents. And that's another load of BS. Again, trying to make these tax increases look tiny, but they're really about taking huge dollars, huge sums of money from rich people and tearing them down. And, you know, it's it's convenient. It's um it's popular, you know, for these politicians to attack the rich. You know, that's their villain. Bernie attacks the rich. Elizabeth attacks the rich. There are some people in, that are wealthy that have gotten their money from by nefarious per- reasons, and and that needs to be condemned. That we need justice. But just because someone built a business that served a huge number of customers that may improve the lives of their customers, improve the lives of their employees, improve the lives of the vendors that supplied that business, created all this goodwill, created all this wealth, 
Those people should be celebrated, not torn down. Those are the people that are helped building our society, building our economy. I mean, someone like Bill Gates, I mean, richest man on the planet, but the amount of good that his company has created is dramatic. And, you know, Microsoft, there's plenty to criticize with Microsoft, but generally speaking, what he has done has had huge transformational impact on the way business is conducted, um, uh, creating all these other industries that have worked around the whole Microsoft platform, has increased productivity, has created job opportunities for people and built wealth, not just for Bill Gates, but for all the people in Microsoft and all of the, the people that buy their product and the people that supply some of the things that they do. So this whole notion of trying to tear down people, I just have a huge problem with. And you know, it's it's like, you know, Trump, when he ran, you know, he had to have a villain. And for him, it was the Mexicans, the immigrants. Um, for Warren and, and Sanders, they have their villain. And that's how they play the game. You know, they got to separate. They got to divide and conquer. They have to create a foil. And these are people that are divisive. These are people that don't want to bring us together. They want to split us and cut us and, and carve us out. And I think that's highly, highly destructive. Um, so not a fan of Elizabeth Warren. And then old Joe Biden's there and he had a better performance. I mean, he sometimes looked like a ghost up there when people were talking to him. He had like this blank, pale look on his face. And um, but, you know, he, I guess, had a better performance. I think some of the people that are supporters of Biden were happy. But have you ever met someone? And this is a serious question to you in the podcast audience. Have you ever met anyone that is a fan of Joe Biden that's running around with Biden stickers and Joe Biden T-shirts and is a supporter of Joe Biden. I have yet to meet a person like that. And yet Biden largely leads in a lot of these national polls. It's just it's incredible. And so, you know, he finished in fourth place in Iowa. He's likely going to have a disappointing finish in New Hampshire. And he's banking on South Carolina because he has so much support from the black community, largely because he was the vice president of Barack Obama. Um, he, I I just I think Biden, like I've said this along all, all from the beginning, he's going to eventually implode upon himself. He's he doesn't have the it factor. He's showing his age. And, yeah, like a lot of people trust him because he's a former vice president. A lot of people trust him because he's part of the Barack Obama administration. Um, so he gets a lot of that by default. But really, I, I just don't see him being the nominee um, at all. Uh, so he was out there. And, and the other thing that was interesting is he had he was always he had his pen in his hand. And, you know, they're up there on the podium. They're taking notes, which is smart, you know, so they can remember what they need to comment on next. But he would use that pen in his hand while he was talking. And I always thought that was an awful look. I mean, first of all, it reminds you of Bob Dole. Um, but Bob Dole had, you know, a disability. And I think having the pen there kind of helped cloak that. But the other part of it was is and I remember someone told this to me a long time ago is you ever see people that always carry like a pen in their shirt pocket or a pen in their jacket? And people think that's a very rational, logical thing to do because a pen's always at the ready. But I remember someone telling me this, and it always stuck with me, is that you shouldn't be the one that has a pen in your pocket because then you always look like the subordinate, the person that's taking notes while the leader is speaking. The, so you become a subservient, a subordinate. And so when Biden is out there using that pen, he kind of has that look. 
And, and then you also see this. It's interesting in the world of sports journalism. You know, the anchor that's at the desk and they've got the, all the analysts. The analysts always seem to have a pen in their hand. And I think that's a, a, a prop. That's my opinion. To make them look like the analysts, like they're taking notes and they're going through the data. But the anchor, you know, the, the host, the number one person on that panel rarely has a pen in their hand because they're the one in charge. Um, so I always thought if you're running for president, you shouldn't be waving a pen around unless you're Bob Dole. <laughs> and Bob Dole has a reason for that. And I respect that. Um, so uh, and then and then there's Mayor Pete. And I've been I've been saying from the very beginning, I think Mayor Pete is going to win the nomination because for a number of reasons. Number one, I think Bernie has a ceiling. Bernie, because Bernie is, and Mayor Pete talked about this, you know, he's all or nothing. You know, he's Medicare for all. You know, he wants to go all the way. And I think, I think that's going to alienate voters. I think there's a lot of voters. Now, granted, Bernie's democratic socialism is becoming more and more popular, but it still has a limit. It still has a ceiling. There's still a lot of people that don't want that, including in the Democratic uh, Party. So I always thought that Bernie has a limit. The other part of this is is that Bernie has a ceiling. Um, The other side of it is, is that if you look at the history of the Democratic Party, when they've ever had a candidate that has won the presidency, they have largely always been younger, up and coming, fresh faces. I mean, think of Barack Obama. Think of Bill Clinton. Um, Jimmy Carter was you know, relatively young, certainly not in his 70s. Um, and then you even go back to like, um, you know, JFK, you know, fresh face, um, energy, youthful energy, a new generation. Um, and I think the Democratic Party likes to, they're progressives. They're always looking forward. Um, so it's interesting that Bernie has done as well as a frumpy old man. I've always thought Mayor Pete has the ability, and he talks about this, that he can bring everyone together. He can be the big tent to get the progressive wing, the moderate wing or corporate wing, as some people say, um, and then other independents. And he likes to talk about future former Republicans, which is a great line. Now, granted, I don't support Pete. Um, I'm not I'm not going to vote for Pete. I'm just saying I predict that he's going to win the nomination. Um, now, he's getting, you know, a lot of criticism because they're saying he's backed by billionaires. And I mean, this whole thing, it's like billionaires are now like framed as evil people. And I just again, I think that is wrong headed thinking. Now, there are some billionaires that are not good people, but just to cast a wide net and say they're all bad is not good. Um, Bill Gates is a billionaire. I think a lot of people think Bill Gates is a good guy. I mean, some people might disagree, but there's a lot of people that really like Bill Gates. I mean, he's out there, he's doing philanthropy. Um, He's giving away, you know, money and resources to all these um, research groups, to people in Africa, all these things that he's doing to, to spread his money around. Now, we can debate the the pros and cons of that, but you know I think most people would think of Bill Gates as being a good person in that light. Um, but he's a billionaire, and so if 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 Mayor Pete's getting you know donations from billionaires, it, it, some people think that makes him bad, makes him wrong, and I I just don't buy off on that at all. 
Um, and, and here, this was a comment that I saw online, and I, I'm going to read it verbatim. I thought it was really good. And it said, policy differences aside, um, Amy Klobuchar is by far the best of these candidates. She's a realist. She doesn't want to burn the, down the system. She doesn't hate half the country. And then I, I'm adding, you know, she's an optimist. She's relatable. Amy Klobuchar had a great great night. Um, and I, I just think it's it's nice how she has just been slowly building. Um, you know, she talks about, you know, I want to bring people home. You know, she she has, I think, as a, as a female candidate, a little bit of a softer touch um, and I, a welcoming touch. And she has tremendous credibility as a two or a three term senator um, and has been very successful in winning elections. Um you know, she's not she's kind of battling with Mayor Pete for that moderate lane. Um, is she going to come forward and be successful? I, I think it'd be fun to see and, and to watch her. But every time I see Amy Klobuchar, I may not agree with her, but I like her. Um, she she gives me, you know, positive vibes. And so um, I thought she had a fantastic evening last night. Um, she she overperformed her poll in Iowa. Is she going to do that again in New Hampshire? We're going to find out. But I think in the end, Mayor Pete is going to end up winning the whole thing. And then he'll go up against President Trump. And at that point, I don't know what's going to happen. Again, now take my take my uh, predictions with a grain of salt. I thought there was no way in hell President Trump was going to win the, the GOP nomination. And then I had I thought there was, again, no way in hell he was going to win the presidency. I mean, I was to me, it was a stone cold lock that he wouldn't win anyone. So it tells you what I know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm still sticking. I think Mayor Pete's going to win the whole thing, well, at least the whole Democratic nomination. And then we'll find out who ends up winning the presidency. All right. Um, speaking of the presidency, I, I just want to make a few comments about President Trump. And he's had a crazy week and has been the impeachment and the State of the Union and all this other stuff. And I'm not going to try to go too deep in the weeds on this uh, because I think a lot of this is largely played out in the media. And for the most part, everyone seems to be in one camp or another. And, you know, there's pretty rigid lines around those camps. Um, but I do want to I have a couple of interesting angles to this. And the first thing in the impeachment, I think we all agree it played out as expected. Right. The House of Representatives, which is a Democratic majority, was going to vote to impeach him. I think everyone kind of saw that was going to happen. And then we knew when it got to the Senate, the Senate, which was largely you know majority of Republicans, they wouldn't. And you needed, I think, a two thirds in the Senate. And there was no way they were going to get a lot of those Republicans to vote to impeach. So it played out as expected. So a lot of people are saying this is a waste of time and waste of money and, and yada, yada. I thought it was great from the perspective of we have a separation of power. And like I said earlier, I think a lot of the power from Congress has been shifting to the presidency. Presidency has been building a fiefdom. And I'm not talking just Trump. This is, goes back decades. Over time, Congress has been losing power and the executive branch has been gaining on it. And since Trump has been president, you know, it just accelerates. So, um, so at any rate, um, um, I thought – Congress pushing back on the executive branch is wonderful. And I, I think they need to do more of that. I think they need to, um, you know, really be co-equal branches of government. Um, so the fact that the Democrats pursued impeachment, knowing full well in the end they likely wouldn't be successful, I still think was a noble cause. Um, and so I, I thought that was great from that perspective. I think you got to give gigantic props 
to Mitt Romney. Um, dude had big balls, big cojones to come out and and um, you know call for the removal of President Trump in one of the two impeachment um, was it the impeachment uh, filings. Um, you could see how much he struggled to to essentially vote his conscience, and you could see that he knew the amount of you know crap that was going to come his way by voting to remove President Trump. And sure enough, it came. You know, CPAP, you know, the, the conservative um, uh, annual convention, uh, they've disinvited him. President Trump has been slamming him. A lot of you know, President Trump supporters are all after Romney. And he's just going to get a, a, a shit ton storm thrown at him. And who knows what his political future is going to be. But he made that decision voting for what he thought was right in the face of huge, strong headwinds. And I just thought that took an incredible amount of bravery. And whether you agree or disagree with, you know, whether or not President Trump should be removed, I think you have to respect that because so often people fall into these these two parties and they're just like robots, automatons. They just, just vote party line, party line, party line. And it's nice to see someone show an independent streak, someone that is not just cowardly trying to protect their own seat in office, but is willing to stand for their own principles. Now, I, I, again, I, I'm not a big fan of Bernie Sanders, and I, you, I've talked about that in this podcast. I don't like a lot of what he stands for, but at least that dude is consistent. He has strong principles. He sticks to them, and I think that deserves tremendous credit. What Romney had to do, I mean, he could have easily said, you know, my one vote isn't going to change the outcome. So, you know, he could have just protected himself um, and just voted no, but he chose to vote yes. And I just thought that was so fantastic. It's interesting, too, how so much of this now is coming down to loyalty, you know. With President Trump demands loyalty. And if you aren't loyal, then he's going to smash you and kick you out, uh, which essentially is what happened with Jeff Flake. And we can go down the list of others that have run up against President Trump. But it's it's sad that our political um, system is so driven by this notion of loyalty and fear and politicians not doing what's right, but instead voting to kind of protect their ass. So you're see, this is like what you, you see in other regimes where there are dictators and demanding of loyalty. This is what leads you to dark times. Um, and it's scary. It really is. Um, when loyalty and fear are such driving motivations, particularly for you know people in the Senate or the House of Representatives. Um, so yeah, Romney deserves massive credit for standing up for what he believes in, and we need to see more of that. Justin Amash did that as well, and I'm, I've given him huge credit for doing that. Uh, he ended up leaving the, the the Republican Party as a result of it, and his future is very much in doubt. But he stood for his principles, and I think that is awesome. Um, the other comment and, and on the State of the Union, and I, I didn't watch it. I should have. I've seen some of the highlights. Um, I normally watch it, but I, for some reason I had something else going on that day. But there was one interesting excerpt that came from this, and Trump declared, socialism destroys nations, but always remember, freedom unifies the soul. Now, 
you know, this is whole notion of, you know, do we believe words? Do we believe actions, et cetera? That message, socialism destroys nations, but always remember freedom unifies the soul. I largely agree with that. I'm a big individual rights, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what this podcast is all about. I strongly support those ideals. Um, not a fan of socialism at all, particularly when it's mandated, where you have no other options, where it's authoritarian driven. And so Trump, again, I've, I've called him out. He's on, the, he's on both sides of so many issues. You know, he'll say that he's for something and then he'll say he's against it. And then he'll say he's for it and against it. And then people never call him out on the inconsistency, but he does that just so he can appeal to whoever the audience is. Um, and it's just insane. And so while Trump said socialism destroys nations, but always remember freedom unifies the soul. Now, just yesterday, his attorney general, William Barr, came out and um, he suggested that the United States and its allies consider taking a controlling stake in Finland's Nokia and Sweden's Ericsson to counter Huawei's, I can never say that name, Huawei's um, dominance in the next generation of 5G telecom technology. Now, Huawei is, uh, and I forgive me, I'm not pronouncing that right. That's the the um, telecommunications giant in China that is a big innovator, putting forward 5G in many ways. I think China is ahead of the America on 5G. But this is a case where the Attorney General of the United States, a sycophant for Trump, a person who really acts as Trump's lawyer more so as than the Attorney General of the United States, who's in Trump's pocket, okay, calling for the government to take ownership of these private corporations. That is the very definition of socialism, where the the people, or in this case, the government, own the means of production. And so Trump is declaring socialism destroys nations, and his attorney general wants the United States and its allies to consider taking a controlling stake, which is more than 51%, in the private companies of Nokia and Ericsson, which are from Finland and Sweden, to counter this other private company in China. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, the hypocrisy is just so thick. It's insane. Um, but do needs to be called out for that. And, you know, Trump condemns socialism, but he campaigned on protecting Social Security. He campaigned on protecting Medicare. And now there are some people are saying that Trump wants to cut it. He's not going to cut those programs because that's his base. That's the Republican base of older voters. There's no way in hell the Republicans are going to cut Social Security and Medicare. Um, Reagan expanded Social Security. Bush expanded Medicare. Even Paul Ryan, when he was trying to reform Medicare, what he did is he didn't cut it. He just slightly reduced the rate of growth. But it still grew. It, so it was never a cut. There is no way that Trump or the Republicans are going to cut those programs. We continue to hear that shrieking from our friends on the left. It's a chicken little move, in my opinion. So Trump you know, campaigned on protecting these socialist policies of social security and Medicare, um, which is essentially single payer, but just for seniors. Um, Trump is enacting a policy in this foolish trade war where he's taxing the American people with tariffs and then giving that money as a bailout to farmers. That's redistribution. That's collectivism. 
That's a form of socialism. Um, Trump even campaigned on universal health care. Now, here he, he called out he didn't want socialism to infect our health care system. But he did an interview in September of 2015 on 60 Minutes. You can look it up where he called for universal health care. You know, he wanted private insurance companies, sure. But those that didn't get insured by private companies would be insured by the government. The taxpayers would pay for it. And he's condemning socialism. He's a socialist himself because he's he's presiding over socialist policies. He's making socialist remarks um, uh, in his campaign. His his uh, people on his staff are calling for more socialism. So that's just a bunch of hooey. In my opinion, I've always said, you know, Republicans are like right wing socialists. They just have they're socialists, but they just have a slightly different version of it. Um, yeah. So uh, something else. Um, and I, I mean, we I could probably go further with President Trump with his um, when he was at the National Prayer Breakfast and he was calling out all of his detractors, you know, running around like a peacock saying he's been vindicated, exonerated. Um, and we knew this was going to happen. Uh, but it's just unbelievable. But I'm going to leave it at that with President Trump. I, I can go forever on that guy. But I. Again, I, I try to keep this podcast more local. And granted, there's a lot of national things going on, you know, with the, the caucus and the debates and, and President Trump. This has been a hell of a week, um, a hell of a two weeks. But I'm trying to be more local. And that's why I really want to focus on Poway Measure B, Measure, excuse me, Measure P. And then I commented a little bit on, on the county supervisor race involving Poway Mayor Steve Voss. Hey, um, Check us out on social media. Come on out to my Facebook page, John Riley Project, or on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is John Riley Poway. And if you can go out there, you can see I live tweeted last night's debate. I have some fun on Twitter. I love talking politics and sports on Twitter. Uh, so share, you know, join me there. And hey, if you, if you like what we're doing here, you know, share this episode with a friend. Tell them about the John Riley Project. Um, you know, leave a ratings, five stars if you think we deserve it on iTunes. That would be really helpful. Okay. Now, here's a closing quote I'm going to leave with you. This is a long one, but I want to read this to you again. And I, I read this in a podcast that I did in May of 2019 when Justin Amash, who I think is a hero, Justin Amash is a former Republican congressman from Michigan, had his differences with President Trump, showed an incredible amount of bravery, calling for his impeachment, uh, got so much heat um, the party tore him down. He lost a lot of his – he was one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus, and they kicked him out of the Freedom Caucus. Um, he eventually left the Republican Party, declared independence on July 4th of 2019 on Independence Day. Now he's running for reelection. Um, I, I think Justin Amash is a hero. I, I really believe that. Um, there's some that are suggesting he may run for president, and if he does, he would have my full support. But at any rate, um, in May of 2019, he came out with a, a series of tweets making a case for President Trump's impeachment. And this was in the aftermath of the Mueller report, and it was all Russia, Russia. This is before the whole Ukraine thing happened um, with President Trump. So I want to read this series of tweets back to you, but I want you to reflect on it in the context of what's happening right now with the impeachment process where Trump was, was you know, exonerated, Trump was not indicted, where um, we had the whole Ukraine thing and, and all the things that have happened with, with President Trump and Congress over the last nine months. 
So this is from Justin Amash. Here are my principal conclusions. Attorney General Barr has deliberately misrepresented Mueller's report. Number two, President Trump has engaged in impeachable conduct. Number three, partisanship has eroded our system of checks and balances. And number four, few members of Congress have read the report. He's talking about the Mueller report. So uh, Amash goes on to say, I offer these conclusions only after having read Mueller's redacted report carefully and completely, having read or watched pertinent statements and testimony, and having discussed this matter with my staff who thoroughly reviewed the materials and provided me with further analysis. So good for him. He read the report. He studied the report. He discussed it with his team. This is what you would expect a congressman to do. But a lot of these people, they just, I mean, some of these guys came out condemning the report like, an hour after the report was released, like they hadn't read it. Uh, Amash took the time to go through it carefully, holistically before he offered these comments. And Amash goes on to say, in comparing Barr's principal conclusions, congressional testimony, and other statements to Mueller's report, it is clear that Barr intended to mislead the public about special counsel Robert Mueller's analysis and findings. Barr's misrepresentations are significant, but often subtle frequently taking the form of sleight of hand qualifications or logical fallacies, which he hopes people will not notice. And this is when, you know, the report before it was fully released, um, you know, Barr came out with like an executive summary of it and said, it's no big deal. Nothing happened, you know. And so um, Amash is criticizing that initially. Then Amash says, under our Constitution, the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. That was a quote he lifted from the Constitution. And he says, while high crimes and misdemeanors is not defined, the context implies conduct that violates the public trust. And Amash is right on that point. Uh, Contrary to Barr's portrayal, Mueller's report reveals that President Trump engaged in his specific actions and a pattern of behavior that meet the threshold for impeachment. This is when he was very brave. He said Trump has crossed the line and he should be held accountable and potentially impeached. Um, he's saying um, he's stepping up, and I give him great credit for that. This is this is where it takes major cojones to step up. In fact, Mueller's report identifies multiple examples of conduct sap- satisfying all the elements of obstruction of justice, and undoubtedly any person who is not president of the United States would be indicted based on such evidence. Firing co- – like, you know, and this is true because – you know, when all this evidence came forward or as it was unfolding, President Trump was firing Comey. He was trying to undermine Mueller. He was obstructing justice. It was very clear. Um, and then the behavior of Attorney General Barr also obstructing justice. Um, Amash goes on to say impeachment, which is a special form of indictment, does not even require probable cause that a crime like obstruction of justice has been committed. It simply requires a finding that an official has engaged in careless abusive, corrupt, or otherwise dishonorable conduct. And he's right. You know, impeachment is, and you don't need to break a statutory law. It's really a political move. And there's a lot of subjectiveness to it. So, uh, and, you know, Trump's behavior and his policies, I mean, we look at emoluments, we can now look at Ukraine now in the, in the rearview mirror. 
Look at what he did with tariffs by penalizing Americans and the trade war that penalized our farmers and um, our exporters and the massive amount of debt he's created and the nepotism, excuse me, the nepotism of Trump and his family. I mean, that is careless, abusive, corrupt and dishonorable. And and that's only the short list. I could go on. So clearly, uh, Amash is right. Trump met that threshold. Trump goes, excuse me, Amash goes on to say, while impeachment should be undertaken only in extraordinary circumstances, the risk we face in an environment of extreme partisanship is not the Congress will employ it as a remedy too, too often, but rather that Congress will employ it so rarely that it cannot deter misconduct. And that's beautiful. So he's so people are saying that. If you try to impeach President Trump this time, then they're going to try to impeach the next president. It's going to create this problem. But the problem is, is that they should be using these impeachment, you know, far more aggressively to hold the president in check. And I don't mean this just as Trump. I mean, the executive branch, because the executive branch has been growing more and more in power. Congress diminish, diminish. Congress has to fight back to have that balance of power, those co-equal branches of government. So. Amash beautifully understands the philosophy behind the Constitution, and that's what he's standing up for, the Constitution. Um, You know, hallelujah. Um, Amash goes on to say, our system of checks and balances relies on each branch's jealously guarding its power and upholding its duties under our Constitution. When loyalty to a political party or to an individual loyalty um, or to an individual trumps the loyalty to the Constitution, the rule of law, then the foundation of liberty crumbles. Actually, I should reread that. When loyalty to a political party or to an individual, which is clearly what's happening with the Republicans and Trump, when loyalty to a political party or to an individual trumps loyalty to the Constitution, then the rule of law, the very foundation of liberty, crumbles. And I mean, that's Amash hit that one right on the head. He goes on to say, we've witnessed members of Congress from both parties shift their views 180 degrees on the importance of character, on the principles of obstruction of justice, depending on whether they're discussing Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. And that's so true. The hypocrisy is amazing. They're they're showing clips of people during the Clinton impeachment, like especially Lindsey Graham, you know, that were really aggressive, wanting to condemn President Clinton on a variety of counts. But then um, now Lindsey Graham is 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 basically protecting Trump from those same principles. And so the hypocrisy just so thick. Um, Amash goes on to say few members of Congress even read Mueller's report. Their minds were made up based on partisan affiliation. And it showed with representatives and senators from both parties issuing definitive statements on the 448 page report conclusion within just hours of its release. And finally, Amash says America's institutions depend on officials to uphold both the rules and spirit of our constitutional system, even when to do so is personally inconvenient or yields a politically unfavorable outcome. Our Constitution is brilliant and awesome, and it deserves a government to match it. Man, freaking Justin Amash is just so awesome. Um, stood at his ground, stood for his principles in the face of Hughes Hedgewinds, left the Republican Party, now running as an independent. Um, doesn't have the power of the party. He's got the Republicans are angry with him. The Democrats are angry with him. But he's still fundraising and doing very well. He's out fundraising them all. Um, will he win 
his uh, or retain his congressional seat? Will he run as a third party for the president of the United States? I think it's a lot of people in the Libertarian Party are hoping Justin Amash can be that guy. They hold their convention in May. So if, if Amash is going to make that move, he better start getting organized. But very interesting to read Justin Amash's comments from May of 2019 within the context of everything that went down with the actual impeachment trial, with all of this fierce loyalty, with with the exception of Mitt Romney breaking free, with the, all the comments and, and all the circumstances related to Ukraine, um, with having nine more months of Trump presidency to reflect on and now rereading those comments. Very amazing. Um, doing what, what Amash did is equal to the amount of bravery that it took Mitt Romney to vote for the removal of President Trump. So unbelievable. So, wow. So it's Saturday. I'm heading out, going to go to my son's baseball game, and then going to get back in time to hopefully watch the Aztecs at Air Force tonight. Uh, probably won't get this podcast posted till later this evening, maybe Sunday morning, because uh, I'm going to be running out the door as soon as I wrap up this recording. I want to thank you all for joining me. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Please subscribe. Please share with a friend. This is the John Riley Project, episode number 109. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye, friends. Bye-bye.